X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 15th, 2020, and I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. You can see Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter near the moon this week. And here's some news on what isn't. Tax day. Should be tax day today. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines. Hillary Ulig from Moms Demand Action on the rise of gun sales in Oregon. And our interview with Graham Trainer, president of the Oregon AFL-CIO, about the conditions for workers during COVID-19. What do we need to do in a, in a moment of a pandemic where there's so many unknown health consequences to think about our workers' compensation system in a more inclusive way? And first up... It's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I am Jefferson Smith, and it's Wednesday, April 15th. The tri-state plan for reopening. In a press briefing yesterday, Governor Kate Brown said she will not ease restrictions or reopen Oregon's economy until she sees a significant drop in active cases. Brown has said she also wants to ensure the state has robust testing, tracing, and an isolation strategy. Brown and the governors of Washington and California have a shared vision for reopening businesses and managing the virus. In a co-authored statement, they said the people's health has to come first. The governor said they would be looking at data, specifically a declining rate of virus spread before any large-scale reopening. For those of us hoping for a specific date, Governor Brown specified she will not be giving out a specific date for reopening yet. Over at the Lund Report, started by longtime Oregonian reporter Diane Lund and probably the best website in the state for healthcare news, they spoke with two dozen public health experts to get a sense of what it would take to reopen the economy. Their answers? Add thousands of public health workers to test, trace, and contain the spread of infection. They just happen to align with the governor's guidelines of testing, tracing, and isolation. Maybe we're doing something to figure this out. You can read about all that over at the Lund Report. Your daily dose of data, the death toll in Oregon is 55 with two deaths yesterday and 50 new known cases of COVID-19 in Oregon. Now a total of 1,633 people who have tested positive. And shout out to Ken Lewis, a legend of Oregon, former chair of the State Ethics Commission, who founded the Oregon branch of the I Have a Dream Foundation, was one of X-Ray's earliest supporters, and who was in his 80s. Ken contracted COVID-19 and after a scare as of today, is doing fine. Some meaning for this data, the Oregon death toll of 13 per million is significantly lower than the national average of 39.4 deaths per million. That's driven by hard-hit states such as New York. When Oregon data is disaggregated by race, Hispanic Oregonians are overrepresented. State data shows that 22% of the diagnosed cases are people who identify as Hispanic. That's well over the 13% statewide population number. While this is impacting everybody, it's not impacting everybody equally. In other coronavirus news, Jackson County in southern Oregon is testing the most people per capita of any county in Oregon and just behind the three hardest-hit states, New York, Washington, and Louisiana. County officials couldn't explain the disparity other than to say they quickly followed the Oregon Health Authority protocols as directed. Multnomah County Sheriff's Office employee has tested positive for COVID-19. It's the first employee of the Sheriff's Office to test positive for the virus. In transportation news, Oregon airports are going to receive more than $140 million in federal aid. The FAA announced that 55 Oregon airports, including PDX, will receive a cut of around $10 billion. That money comes from the CARES Act Congress passed last month. The money is meant to keep airports open and workers employed amid sharp declines in revenue and passenger traffic due to COVID-19. 
Airlines are still flying, but passenger volume is down 94% at Portland International. We call it PDX. And, of course, shout out to the Portland International Airport, multiple times named the nation's best airport. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, in an unprecedented move, is putting his name on stimulus checks sent out to families. Unclear if that includes the $72.3 million that PDX will receive. And in boating news, on this day, back in the day, April 15, 1912, the RMS Titanic sank into the Atlantic. And Kate Winslet wouldn't let Leonardo DiCaprio share her makeshift raft. Do you find yourself watching things on TV, like people hugging or sharing a small raft? Or heck, getting on a cruise ship and thinking, hey, that's not socially distanced. It's happening to me all the time. Multnomah County Jail's adult inmate population is down by 30%. The county's two adult jails are at 62% capacity compared to 92% at the beginning of March. One reason? Local police and sheriff's officers are issuing more citations for misdemeanors with later court dates instead of arresting and sending people to jail. To be clear, arrests are still being made for domestic violence and other life-threatening crimes. The DA's office is also allowing early release for those with less than two weeks left in their sentence or who are awaiting trial and are immunosuppressed or have underlying health conditions. The governor announced on Tuesday she has decided not to pursue early release of inmates statewide. As of Monday, 13 inmates and staff had tested positive for the virus. Portland has announced city employee furloughs freezes of pay raise, and a mayoral salary cut. The city is anticipating more than $100 million in lost revenue. The furloughs and pay freezes for about 1,700 non-represented staff are expected to save the city more than $19 million. That includes workers in the city's development services, management and finance, human resources, and water bureaus. The city is negotiating with the unions that represent the other city employees regarding pay freezes and furloughs as well. Portland government employs approximately 7,800 people and has already cut 950 jobs, most of them seasonal parks jobs. Ted Wheeler has said that he's not going to take a salary for the rest of the year. City records show the mayor's salary is $143,665 in 2019, and a city spokesperson said the city will save around $95,000 on that salary cut. Portland officials are anticipating receiving around $100 million in federal aid and are considering borrowing another $100 million to fill funding gaps. And some good news, Golden Nuggets. The Portland Fire Department will be activated in a new way, according to the Portland Observer. Shout out to the Observer. Chief Sarah Boone is collaborating with the Multnomah County Aging Disabilities and Veterans Services to make sure that at-risk seniors get their medicine. Portland Fire and Rescue will deploy its community health assessment team to pick up and drop off needed medications for seniors and individuals with disabilities. For more information, you can call 971-288-7687. They're open 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. And thanks to the mask makers. The Timbers Army have ordered 1,000 masks and a new volunteer group, Sew to Save Oregon, shout out to Lisa Schneiderman, is recruiting sewers to respond to thousands of orders. Also, an Oregonian made a cameo in John Krasinski's Some Good News show. The guy who played Jim in the office is bringing happy news to people every week. This week featured William Lapskis, the Oregon veteran we talked about right here, who celebrated his 104th birthday after recovering from coronavirus. I was the guy who credited getting healthy to sitting outside. And on this day, back in the day, Abraham Lincoln died. In 1849, by the way, Abe Lincoln was offered the position of governor to the Oregon Territories, and he turned it down. 
In his defense, that was well before a vote by mail, the Portland Timbers, mask sewing volunteers, the Portland Airport, automatic voter registration, and even 57 years before William Lapsky's was born. Basically, all we led the way in back then was social distancing. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you're listening to The Local. Now, Emily Gilliland and Hillary Ulig from Moms Demand Action Oregon discuss the recent rise in Oregon gun sales and ballot measure slowdowns due to social distancing. Moms Demand Action is a grassroots movement to protect people from gun violence. Today, we have Hillary Ulig, Oregon chapter leader, to share information on their work. Good morning, Hillary. Good morning. Tell us more. What is Moms Demand Action? So Moms Demand Action was started on Facebook after the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. And since then, we've grown to have uh, active volunteer chapters in every state and D.C. So we are the nation's largest grassroots gun violence prevention organization. And uh, we have just been really trying to get the message out about gun safety. It was started by a mom, but you don't have to be a mom to be a part of our movement. We could be called uh, mothers and others. Uh, We have parents, non-parents, grandparents, students, gun owners, and non-gun owners alike. So anyone who wants to work to end gun violence is welcome in our movement. What does your work look like specifically in the state of Oregon? Uh, Well, it's changed a little bit now since we're all in the stay-home order, but since we started online, we are, you know, perfectly poised to to go back and move all of our work virtually. But in Oregon, we have local groups of volunteers across the state working at all different levels to curb the gun violence crisis in our communities. And we recognize all different forms of gun violence, including um, homicide, gun suicide, unintentional shootings, and the link between domestic violence and gun violence. So we have volunteers meet with our state legislators to attend town halls and advance common sense, evidence-based gun safety legislation. We have groups building coalitions to address city gun violence and groups working with school boards to make sure parents are aware of secure firearm storage practices. We also throughout the year host vigils and remembrances and we elevate survivor voices so they have an opportunity to share their experiences. We have uh, educational presentations that we can uh, make to community groups about preventing different forms of gun violence, one of which uh, we're highlighting today across the nation is called Be Smart, which helps people understand that as adults, we are responsible for keeping kids safe by securing firearms in our homes and vehicles and asking about firearms in homes where our kids or grandkids uh, might visit. Uh, We also have something called One Thing to Do, a presentation we can give to explain how Oregon's red flag law works as a tool to temporarily remove firearms from someone who's a threat to themselves or others. So a lot of our work is being done online right now, but... um, You know, once our our stay-home orders are lifted, we'll be able to get back out in the community and engage in face-to-face actions. Now, you all have been working on a piece of legislation that would go to the ballot in this November November election. Is that right? Yeah. Our 2020 legislative priority was for secure storage uh, legislation, which ties into our Be Smart um, 
program just to make sure that uh, that firearms are secured safely because in Oregon there's currently no requirement for gun owners to secure their firearms and that presents huge safety risks for our families and community particularly now that we have so many children who are home alone um, or home with unsecured firearms. Will your legislation get to the ballot or is it has it been stopped because you can't gather signatures? Um, I believe right now it's on hold. We're having a little, you know, we, we can't get out and gather signatures for it right now. Um, it was another organization who was spearheading the, the ballot initiative. Um, so, but we were uh, hoping it would, it would uh, get some traction, but we are committed to, um, to continuing our work in the next legislative session. Yeah. Does Moms Demand Action endorse candidates? Uh we have a gun sense candidate distinction for candidates who have demonstrated that they'll govern for gun safety. So the candidates' names will be rolling out in the coming weeks on um, a website called gunsensevoter.org where people can um, enter their address and find out their uh, legislators if they have uh, pledged to work for gun safety. Got it. What's your general reaction to the recent increase in gun sales in Oregon? Well, it's, uh, it's an interesting twist that I wasn't expecting from the pandemic. We have plenty of Moms Demand Action volunteers for gun owners or live in households with guns. So we have, we have no issue with responsible gun ownership. But it's odd that throughout the world, families are stocking up on things like toilet paper and hand sanitizer. But in America, many people are also lining up to buy guns and ammunition as a reaction in part to the fear and misinformation spread by the gun lobby. They have spent decades trying to tell Americans uh, that the idea of more guns will make us safer. But if that were true, we would be the safest nation on earth. And instead, Americans live with a gun homicide rate that's 25 times higher than in other developed nations. And many of the people who are buying guns now, this may be the first gun they've purchased. And they may be making the purchase without considering the risks that accompany gun ownership, including an increased likelihood for unintentional shootings or intimate partner violence and gun suicide during this time of isolation. Mm. How can folks get more involved with Moms Demand Action and support your work? Well, this uh, public health crisis um, hasn't stopped gun violence in our country. So there's lots of work to still be done. Uh, we can, you can follow MomsDemandAction.org to look for local events or local virtual calls to uh, get more information. And you can also text the word READY to the number 64433. And uh, someone will be in touch and that way you will get um notified of events that are happening in your area. Thank you for that. Is there anything else that our listeners should know about your work? Well, I think um, we're all worried for everyone whose lives will be affected by the coronavirus. And we also fear for all of those who will be at greater risk of experiencing gun violence at the same time. So as we work to flatten the curve, uh, our volunteers can also keep organizing to stop gun violence at the same time because we all want to keep our families safe and we have to address both crises at the same time. Mm. 
Hillary, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Sure, thank you. Next up is our interview with Graham Trainer, president of the Oregon AFL-CIO. Graham talks about the current landscape for workers in Oregon, the visible gaps in the social safety net, and how unions are supporting workers through the pandemic. Good morning, Graham. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So after a month of upheaval, closures, and uncertainty, what is the current employment landscape for workers in the state? Uh, it's a great question. You know, this is clearly a, an incredibly difficult and scary time for working people and all of our communities. Workers are reeling. Uh, as so many of their lives have been turned upside down, uh, in part because of the stats that you just shared about layoffs. Um, or, you know, folks that are, frankly, our everyday heroes that are showing up for work risking exposure to the virus themselves um, in the midst of this uh, statewide, uh, most everyone stay at home order. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a difficult time all around. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, some interesting new benefits and, uh, and opportunities coming out of the CARES Act, uh, the federal $2.2 trillion uh, st- stimulus package that was passed a few, few weeks ago. Uh, but none of that makes uh, this easy. And, uh, you know, I look forward to this conversation around, uh, you know, the reality for working people, um, you know, but, uh, you know, in my mind as a worker advocate, the president of the Oregon AFL-CIO, that statewide federation of labor unions, and we act as a voice for all working people in the state, um, you know, it's really important to kind of center the, the those everyday heroes that I referenced, um, the healthcare workers and the nurses that are showing up to work uh, and doing what they've got to do to take care of patients. We've got grocery workers and farm workers, that are still, again, uh, keeping our communities fed um, while the economy around them shuts down. We've got first responders, firefighters, paramedics, public transportation workers, you know, and the list goes on. So there's really, um, you know, I think an important centering of the value of working people, especially low-wage hourly workers um, in this moment. Um, And, uh, you know, and it's something that I I carry with me every day in in, in in the darkness and the challenges of this this really is posing for for so many working people, both on a public health perspective and an economic perspective. Hmm. What are labor unions in Oregon doing in response to the pandemic? You know, uh, it's hard to think of something we're not doing. Uh, Hmm. The labor movement is really uh, kind of the last line and sometimes the only line of defense for the working class. Um, And so uh, we're doing things from policy work, uh, making sure that there's immediate relief for workers, both in Oregon and obviously with the federal package, um, that includes income assistance, access to PPE, access to exist, existing and expanding benefits. Uh, we've been an advocate, a longtime advocate for housing stability and um, housing security. And so this really heightens the need for that work, childcare access, food access. So, um, you know, and, if, and I don't want to miss an opportunity to talk about the, the undocumented and non-English speaking workers, uh, many of whom fall through the cracks of today's safety net. And so it's really important to keep those folks in mind in, in terms of immediate relief. Um, we're also having to play some really important de- defense uh, against corporate attempts to roll back worker protections using this crisis as an opportunity to, to you know, to, to, to make in-runs um, on existing laws. Um, you know, and, and one of the things I think and talk a lot about are those gaps and the cracks that have really been exposed uh, in our public safety net and our worker protection laws during COVID, this moment of crisis. Um, that we need to address in the in the months and years ahead. Um, you know, we're directly supporting impacted workers too. So we've uh, we've developed a lot of different resources, along with a number of unions that have done the same for their members to support impacted workers. We're having uh, weekly uh, seminars and trainings for workers dealing with uh, the unemployment system or different public safety net systems. Um, we're supporting unions that are on the front lines with their own members. 
um, you know, uh, you know, it really depends on the part of the economy, the impact that this is uh, really having on, on a worker's life. Um, in some parts of the economy, you have major hiring needs, and in other parts of the economy, the economy you have complete shutdowns and literally 100% layoffs. And so, um, so meeting folks where they're at and giving them the support that they need. But then, you know, a really key thing that I think is important to keep in mind, um, it's easy to go to kind of crisis mode um, and, and in our thinking and in our actions, but um, I've been reminding folks, uh, you know, it's really important that, we're, that we remember that economic inequality was reaching record levels before this crisis took hold of our lives, meaning that the rigged economic system really wasn't working for most of us before COVID. Mm-hmm. And so it's important that leaders, as we sort of think about a recovery and a rebuild, that we're making policy decisions um, now that don't exacerbate economic inequality. After almost every economic recession and downturn in our nation's history, economic inequality has gotten worse in the recovery. And so it's really important to keep that centered as well as we think about policy solutions. And then, of course, we're, as I've alluded to, developing a plan that will help keep workers at that center of the discussion. Um, in the re- in the economic recovery, so um, you know we're really channeling the the struggle of the working class right now, and that's that really is reflected in the diversity of our work uh, to be that uh, in a lot of ways that last line of defense for folks that are most impacted. What are some of the cracks in worker protections that have become more visible in the last few weeks? Yeah, it's a great question, um, and it's something we've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, you know, one uh, example is, um, you know, I think the challenges that were just highlighted in the previous conversation around the unemployment system, um, while uh, there's been really exciting and important expansions that have been provided for workers to access like the $600 additional payment per week in the CARES Act, like um, independent contractor access, which, you know, typically independent contractors and self-employed folks aren't, aren't able to access unemployment benefits. Uh, but giving those types of workers access to unemployment benefits, those are really big deals and important uh, important uh, expansions uh, that were a part of the federal stimulus. At the same time, when you have one in eight Oregonians laid off, and in the last three weeks we've seen more unemployment claims than at any point at the height of the Great Recession, <laughs> um, it's important to realize that capacity systems and the, the unemployment, um, you know, insurance program itself, um, you know, probably needs um, some modernizing. And so uh, when I think about the long-term strategy, the unemployment system, working in partnership with the Oregon Employment Department to, to ensure that, uh, that that system is ready for another crisis um, is really important. Another example, um, you know, we still don't know, no one knows the full long-term health impacts of this virus on working people or anyone who comes in contact with it. And so um, when I think about the, one of the challenges, and, a, and to your question about a gap and a crack, um, the workers' compensation system is meant to protect workers and support workers if they've been exposed or injured on the job, exposed to something uh, you know, that, that causes them harm or are injured on the job. Um, right now, we don't have a, a system that allows for a worker who is exposed today but doesn't seem the impact until you know, you know, potentially long time, you know, months down the road um, to access workers' compensation benefits. And so it's really important to think about what do we need to do in a, in a moment of a pandemic where there's so many unknown health consequences to think about our workers' compensation system in a more inclusive way. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier the, uh, you know, Im- the reality of immigrant workers, frankly, undocumented workers, farm workers, um, you know, folks that, uh, that currently work in the shadows 
but are paying into our systems, but will never receive benefits. Um, those folks are completely falling through the cracks um, in our current structure. Um, you know, there are some opportunities and some exciting uh, proposals that are happening here in Oregon and in some other parts of the country in different states um, where, uh, where we can remedy this, uh, but we still have a long way to go. Um, you know, paid sick leave is another example. Um, you know, when we passed the paid sick leave law, which we were really proud of in 2015 here in Oregon, um, you know, it was, a, it was a groundbreaking moment to ensure that workers, no matter uh, what was happening to them, you know, in terms of their health or their family's health, uh, that they could actually afford to not have to make that choice of going to work or, or uh, going to work sick. Um, and uh, and we, uh, we were really proud of that moment. Um, and now we're realizing that those five paid sick days that are, you know, all employers are required to provide to their workers in Oregon, to most, to most workers, um, is clearly not enough when you think about a quarantine period or an incubation period. So, um, so I think those are just a couple of the examples of, I think, some of those gaps in the cracks that um, we're going to continue to build on in the future. Um, and then we can't lose sight of when we think about, uh, you know, again, the, the economic system that we that this crisis started in, which was, again, leaving so many working people behind, especially women and work, workers of color. Mm. What should newly out-of-work Oregon, Oregonians be aware of? I think that it's important that um, someone who's, uh, you know, been terminated or laid off from work, you know, the most important thing to do is just to start working on that unemployment insurance claim. Clearly, uh, again, the conversation before laid out some of those challenges and the system uh, constraints. <clears throat> you know, uh, the Oregon AFL-CIO, um, the Statewide Federation of Labor Unions, has created a resources page on our website, um, and that's at orafl-cio.org slash COVID-19. You can find it. Um, there's a really a, a significant compilation of resources there. A lot of organizations are doing similar things, um, but we've really tried to make it a one-stop shop for any worker uh, looking to access benefits, looking to get questions answered. Um, you know, there's no question that the unemployment system is taxed, uh, again, with those statistics we shared earlier. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, important to keep in mind. It doesn't excuse the, the, the frustration that workers face when they have a system that's down or they're told to restart their claim. Those are all real, uh, really significant frustrations, um, you know, as this is a generational economic and public health crisis. Um, but uh, we're working with OED, the Oregon Employment Department, to ensure that um, they have the capacity they need. I know there's work underway to expand their capacity and ensure that those, those barriers aren't, um, aren't a reality uh, in the long term. Um, I also just wanted to touch on a couple things that I've alluded to, the additional resources from the CARES Act, that, that $2.2 trillion uh, federal stimulus bill that was passed by Congress a few weeks ago. Um, I kind of rattled through those, a few of those stats, but, uh, but you know, one of the really important, um, you know, while it wasn't perfect, um, it was a really important strategy, um, and we have actually Senator Ron Wyden, our senior U.S. Senator, to thank for that um, as, the, as the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee. Um, and a leader in those negotiations uh, before the CARES Act passed. Um, but, you know, there was a, there was a, a really deep think about, uh, you know, how do we make workers whole or close to whole? Unemployment benefits don't cover an entire worker's paycheck. They cover a portion of a worker's paycheck. So the $600 additional UI benefit per week is a really important um, income, um, income gap st uh, stop gap that, um, that is part of that uh, federal stimulus. Now, I know there's conversations in Oregon about how quickly workers will be able to access that. I think there's even some conversations uh, or uh, commentary on, their, on, the, on the state system's website about when uh, that'll be available. 
But that's a really big deal to, again, work towards making workers whole in this economic downturn when they lose income. Um, and the same thing, I'll, I'll just repeat the, the point I made earlier about folks that typically are excluded from unemployment benefits, um, like independent contractors and self-employed folks. Um, again, that's also a really uh, important gain in the system um, because of the federal stimulus. And so while, uh, albeit, you know, temp- temporary, um, these are benefits that uh, typically, um, you know, and in, in normal circumstances, independent contractors aren't uh, aren't uh, able to access. And, um, and in this moment, uh, because of the the you know the kind of the degree of the crisis, they they are. Um, mm-hmm. So those are the few few things that I would I would encourage folks. And again, the the Oregon AFL CIO website's orafl-cio.org/slash/covid19. And again, lots of resources for working people, whether they're a member of a union or not. So as you consider the impacts of COVID-19 on workers, have you seen anything that has permanently permanently changed for the better? Um, you know, that's a great question. Um, you know, <laughs> and I think there are a couple. It's hard to think of too many, but there are a couple uh, bright spots that I'll highlight. Um, you know, the thing that the, that the organized labor movement um, has always been saying is that, you know, all work has dignity and value. And so when I think of... Um, you know, I've seen some social media memes around who the real heroes are. They're clearly not billionaires and CEOs. They're the grocery workers. They're the first responders. Um, that really rings true. And I think it's, I think in some ways, um, this crisis is um, really forcing society in, in, in some way, we don't know how lasting it will be, but in some way uh, to reevaluate the value and the dignity that they see these types of workers having. And so, again, um, you know, whether they're the healthcare workers on the front lines, those grocery workers or farm workers, um, first responders, the folks that take the call anyway, no matter what's happening around them, but now are, um, you know, really run the risk of being exposed to this virus. Um, but they don't, they don't, that's not a consideration. They're, they're first responders, so they, they do that work. Um, all these types of folks, I think, are going to have, at least right now and especially, and, you know, and, and we're going to do everything we can to keep that uh, to keep that um, that sort of that vision of who the real heroes are in our economy. Um, I think that's one bright spot, you know, um, that that folks are kind of centering and reevaluating the way that they think about work and workers. Um, you know, it also I think um, while it takes pain to get here, um, I also think that the the exposure I mentioned gaps and cracks earlier. The exposure of some of the ways that the safety net, the public safety nets that we've created as a state and as a country, and the worker protection laws that are on the books. I think in both of those arenas, I think that the exposure of those gaps and cracks in this really unfortunate, difficult, dark time in our nation and in our state's history um, will give us um, somewhat of a roadmap, and frankly, remind policymakers of those gaps and cracks and. And I think instill some urgency in doing something about them, mm-hmm. um, making our laws and our safety net programs and our communities and our workplaces more resilient for future crises like this. So, again, it's hard to think of too many bright spots in this really dark time when so many people are impacted in a really significant economic and health sort of way. Uh, but those are two things that come to mind. Uh, what can Oregon workers expect in the weeks and months ahead? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> The million dollar question. I mean, I think that um, I'll, I'll leave the speculation of, uh, you know, of what happens in our economy and kind of the, the earlier conversation around um, what this what this West Coast state kind of consortium looks like for reopening um, to I'll leave that to the, you know, to, to the to the governors of those three states and the public health experts. But, um, you know, but 
but you know, I, I guess it's important to just remind folks again that many workers are being left behind while Wall Street's profit soared um, just about a month ago, um, and it's gotten worse since. And so, um, you know, we have uh, just set a record in this country with more workers than ever before holding multiple part-time jobs. And so, um, I'm not giving a, a ray of hope here for workers, <laughs> based on your question, um, but I do think for leaders and opinion uh, opinion leaders in the community, it's important to be thinking about what do we need to do as a state and in, in, in the Portland region or in communities around the state um, to to make our economy work for more people. Now, the last thing worker advocates want to see, the last thing, frankly, anyone wants to see, they just often don't do much about it, is to make our economy more equal, unequal than it than it was uh, prior to this crisis. And so, um, you know, in the in the weeks and months ahead, um, you know, there'll be robust and thorough policy solutions and, and opportunities to tackle economic inequality. Um, you know, whether we end up with a special session or there's additional executive orders, I think that there's lots of opportunities for policy innovations in this moment. Um, and you know, in the weeks and months ahead for for workers. Um, I'll just uh, I'll just thank working people, the people that are keeping us going through this difficult and dark time, uh, for the work that they're doing, and know that the and I want them to know that those workers that are really keeping us keeping us moving, keeping our economy somewhat open, um, you know, to know that um, the, the organized labor movement and the Oregon AFL CIO and our affiliated unions are doing everything we can uh, to to prepare our communities, our state, our safety nets, and our worker protection laws. Um, in a way that um, that don't have this type of dramatic impact with a future pandemic like this. So um, I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer, but it's about all I've got right now. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great answer. Thank you so much, Graham, for joining us this morning. We appreciate you sharing your perspective and resources. You bet. Thanks again for having me. And that's Graham Trainer, Oregon AFL-CIO president. You can find out more at orafl-cio.org backslash COVID-19. Thanks to Hillary, thanks to Graham, thank you, Emily, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Please do write a review, give a five-star rating, share it with friends, and by the way, local newspaper The Willamette Week has nominations right now for Best of Portland. Shout out to X-Ray, who's been named Best of Portland the last five years. You could nominate this podcast and help encourage Portland having an everyday daily local news podcast. We'd appreciate it. If you have story ideas, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. I'm Jefferson Smith. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy.